Thank you, music team. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 1. We continue our Advent study this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And as you are getting settled there, I'm going to read the passage we will be looking at this morning. As we pick up in our study of Luke here this morning, Matthew 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray here this morning. Father, we thank you for the joy that we have in Christ and the joy of just being able to celebrate this together as your people. And we just thank you for the gift of Jesus and what it means to consider his coming into the world. And Lord, as we gather now to be under your word, may our focus be on this text. May it open our eyes to hear what you're saying, that we might engage your truth and love you more. I thank you so much for what you've given to us. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought that the people in the Old Testament, in in one sort of way, had it a little better than us, in that God seemed to talk to them in ways he doesn't seem to talk to us? You You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that like, David, he's trying to figure out what, where he should live after Saul dies. And so he inquires of the Lord, where should I live? And God says, Hebron. So he says, okay, when should I go? And God says, now. And so then he goes. It just seems so simple. Right? Moses is walking along and a bush is on fire and starts talking to him. Here's what you're going to do. Right? It, it seems as if, in the one hand, that they had it so much better. Like, could you imagine if you're sitting at work and you're like, boy, I don't really like my job. Should I quit? And all of a sudden your garbage can catches on fire, you know. <laughs> And says, go into your, your boss's office and resign. Then apply at this company over here now. You know, like, that would seem like it's so much better. That God communicates in those kind of direct sort of ways. In fact, there was a philosopher about 15, 17 years ago, wrote a book called The Disappearance of God. And the point of his book is he's saying, God just seemed to disappear. He started talking directly with Adam. And by the time you get to the New Testament, he's silent. Where'd he go? Where did God go? So the question is, do, are we at a disadvantage today over 
David or Moses or any of the people in the Old Testament. We had a disadvantage. Now that we're here and things don't just kind of pop up and start talking to them, bushes don't talk to us and smoke doesn't show up and tell us where to drive and, and all those kind of things. We don't have that kind of communication from God. Are we at a disadvantage? Are we in a worse place? Well, one of the things that we celebrate in the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, is not only what God has done for us, but also what God has said to us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that God spoke in a lot of different ways to the people in the Old Testament. In fact, the way he says is many portions, many ways. Lots of things, bushes, dreams, visions, all kinds of stuff, sending prophets, all kinds of communication. Then in these last days, it says, he's spoken to us in his son. So he's not done communicating. But his communication has become very specific. Very specific. And that communication is meant to do something. In the Old Testament, maybe, you know, a bush catches on fire and tells Moses, this is what you're supposed to do. Or David says, where am I supposed to live? And this voice tells him, go live over here. But in these last days, when God spoke through Jesus and the sending of Jesus, what God was doing was giving us an interpretation of reality. Something much deeper, much more profound than just what job should you take. God actually interpreted the whole world for us. And suddenly, in the advent of Jesus, what we have is the world beginning to make sense. It all starts to click. And what you get in the voice of Jesus is something deeper than just some momentary direction in your life. What you get is a whole way of viewing the world and a whole way of engaging the world and a whole way of living that can help you solve any problem that you could ever have in your life. If you get it. If you hear the voice of Jesus. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Matthew. We're continuing our, our Advent study. And, and, and here in Matthew, we're going to look at what Matthew records in, in, the, in the Advent story. He's a little bit different than, uh, than Luke. What Matthew focuses on right after this genealogy is Joseph. And he starts jumping into the, the, to Joseph's experience with the birth of Jesus. And he had quite an experience with the birth of Jesus, as we'll see. And this experience caused Joseph to face a very big crisis in his life. A huge crisis. And the reason why he faced this crisis is because the world as he understood it was collapsing around him. And what he needed was to understand the world from God's point of view. And that's what happens. And so what we have, you see there in your outline there, we have Joseph's interpretation of the moment. We're going to see this crisis that Joseph has. But then we're going to see God's interpretation of the moment. God steps in and speaks to Joseph, tells him what's happening, and defines who Jesus is. Defines who this baby is that's in his betrothed's womb. And he tells him who he is and what he's going to do and how to understand him. And once Joseph sees who Jesus is, he can begin to act and operate in the world. And it all makes sense. So today, what I want you to do is we're going to see what Jesus is going to do today. That's going to be part of the story. But I want you to hear what God is saying through the advent of Jesus. I want you to hear the voice of God. 
And see the worldview that it gives and the way that it should impact your life. And, and I believe that, that in the end, when we get to the end and I begin to unpack it, you'll begin to see the, the practical realities of what it means to hear what Jesus is saying to us in the advent of Jesus. So let's look here first at the first point here, Joseph's interpretation of the moment. Just look with me at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So there's lots of stuff in there that we need to kind of take a moment and define so we can understand the tension that's forming here. Uh, First of all, one little side note. Remember, when you see Jesus Christ in your brain, you should always insert Jesus the Messiah. Okay, remember Christ is not his last name or a surname or something that you're putting there. It's a title. And so what he's saying is, now here's the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. So now, what do we have in this story? Well, his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now we've got to put this uh, into account here and understand, first of all, Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Now, many of you know this, we've talked about this in the past, but just to, let me help set the table of what it means to be betrothed. Their marriage custom was slightly different from our marriage custom. Our marriage custom is simple. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They go, wow, hey, you're cute. Hey, we should get to know each other. Hey, you're godly. I'm godly. Hey, we love Jesus. You love Jesus. Parents all like it. Let's get married. Right? And so they propose, and six months later, they get married. Right? It's just kind of a a simple, well, it doesn't feel simple when you're single, but... (laughs) But after you've been married for a while, it's it's simple. (laughs) Um, Process. In that day, slightly different. Okay? Two parents meet. Hey, you got cool kids, right? So let's talk about this. And the parents meet, and they fall in love with each other in that sort of way. Hey, I like this family. Let's, let's connect. Then the kids get together, and they go, okay, mom, dad, this is all good. And then once all the price and the, the bride price and all that's established, because this kind of a commodities exchange going on here. Um, Then, once everybody's in shape, a betrothal process begins. You are technically married at the beginning of the betrothal process. Basically, it's marriage 1.0, and then you get to marriage 2.0. Marriage 1.0, or phase one of marriage, is this. You're betrothed. You are now together. You are now committed to each other. And that commitment means that you are Once you're betrothed, you're married. Now, in that betrothal process, though, you're not living together and there's no intimacy between the couple because the husband's job is to go off and get the house ready and get the job ready and get the finances in order. And he's got one year to get everything in order so that he can come back and and get his bride. And when he comes back, they have a giant party. And then at the course of that giant party... They then get to be together as a couple. And they get to, 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 to share the intimacy of marriage. Right? That's the picture of our salvation, right? Christ has come. He's died. He then what? Says, I love you. I'm giving you my spirit. You are now my bride. And we are betrothed to Jesus. It does not mean that Jesus is in heaven going, oh, it could work, it might not work. No, I'm committed to you. But here's what I'm doing. He told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you 
to heaven. And what are we going to have? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So same thing. Okay, that's, that's, that's the picture that's there. So Joseph and Mary are in this betrothal process, which means they're married. They're committed to each other. Joseph is in the one-year process of getting the house in order, getting everything in order, when God jumps into the situation and all of a sudden gets the emperor to say, we need a census to figure out how many people I have in my kingdom so I can increase their taxes. And so what happens? They now have to go back to the origin of their family line. And Joseph and Mary are of the same line, the same tribe. And so they, since they're betrothed, they're traveling together. So that's, that's, that's how that whole story plays out. Now, Joseph and Mary are in this betrothal process. In the course of this, this angel comes upon Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. Spirit's going to put this baby in you. And she says, okay, I'll do it. And then what does she have to do? She's got to have a really really awkward conversation. I'm pregnant, but I did not cheat on you. Picture that conversation. Right? Matthew makes it pretty simple, right? Right? He just says, when Mary had been found to be betrothed before they were together, you know, she was with Charlie. He just kind of explains it quickly. That one verse, verse 18, I am certain was a dramatic conversation, right? Could you imagine that? I, t- I, I don't know what, what it must have been like, but I'm just envisioning all kinds of scenario, from a really godly scenario, Joseph being really patient and shepherdly, all the way to Joseph going, what, you're crazy! If you're pregnant, I don't know what to tell you, woman. You're telling me, God, and then she's saying, okay, it's the Spirit of God. Put this in me. You can imagine him going, don't blaspheme God that way. God doesn't do that. Right? You could just imagine how this would be offensive to him. Just always, I'm, you know, you just let that scenario play out. There's the crisis. They're betrothed. She's pregnant. It's from the Spirit. And here is what we're going to learn from the text. Joseph doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe her. So whatever, however that played itself out, whatever human emotion was there, this would have been a conflict beyond belief. She's trying to explain the Spirit of God. This is an angel came to me, and this is all this big messianic stuff. And and he says, I don't believe you. How do you know he says this? Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's over. I can't be with you. Now, in that day, the law said that if she had committed adultery, she should be murdered. She should be stoned. But the Roman government frowned upon people murdering people, so you couldn't have done that. But what they would do is kind of do a Nathaniel Hawthorne on her. Do you know what that means? Scarlet letter. They would publicly humiliate the woman. They would just drag them through the streets and call them adulterers and throw things at them. And, and it was just a horrible thing. It was probably the same thing that was going on with a woman who was caught in adultery. They probably were, were, would, would have abused them up to the point as far as they could get that the Roman government would allow them to go. So that's what they would do. Instead of because the Roman government wouldn't let them murder, they would put them to shame. But notice what it says about Joseph. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, means a righteous man. 
in his heart, he trusts God. And he's going to take the situation. Now, let's just look at this from Joseph's point of view for a moment. He's clearly wrong, okay? But how could he know any different, right? He's, he's clearly wrong, but he doesn't know any different. But let's look at it from his point of view. He feels as if, as if his wife did the unthinkable to him. And not only that, whatever, well, I'm reading into the text here, but whether or not he feels as if she's then trying to mask it behind some kind of spiritual thing or not, who knows how he would have felt about that at that moment. But he doesn't believe her. But rather than acting out of his hurt and rather than acting out of whatever feelings he might have, notice what it says about him. You know, he's righteous, man. He's walking with God and he will not let her be dragged through the mud. He's going to protect her. And so what he's going to do is do this quietly, it says. He's got to divorce her in his heart because he feels as if that's what the law would require of him. He's a righteous man. He wants to follow God. He can't be with an adulterer. He doesn't want to align himself with this. And so he says, it's, it's done. I can't be with you. But notice, I think, how he reflects God in one sense. A very limited sense, but in one sense. Habakkuk says to God, when the wrath of God was coming, Habakkuk says, God, in wrath, remember mercy. You know, that, that whatever God does, God does with tenderness and mercy. And God is amazing how merciful and how wide his mercy is. That, that, and I think this is a small little snapshot of this in Joseph, in that Joseph feels as if he could, dra- you, know, that the, you know, society and everybody would just say, hey man, she did this to you. She deserves this. It's what the law requires. But yet he says, I'm going to do what's right, but I'm going to do it with mercy. And I'm going to protect her. So even though he feels he's been betrayed, he still wants to protect her and to keep her from experiencing the shame of being marked as an adulterer. And so what he does is he says, basically, I'm willing to go into obscurity. I'm willing to go hide. I'm willing to divorce you and protect you and keep you from experiencing all the pain that would come if everybody knew what you did to me. And so I'm going to do the right thing, but I'm going to do it with mercy which is what I think is amazing about Joseph, given the amount of hurt that he felt, that mercy was still uh, an operating system for him. You know, it's, it, I find, find conviction in that, like personally just being convicted by, wow, can I do what's right from an attitude of mercy? I mean, that just really, it just speaks to me there as I see Joseph in that sort of way. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to put her away. He's going to quietly set this whole thing aside because he's in this situation where it doesn't make sense to him. Now, what's he missing? What's Joseph missing? Here's what he's missing. He's missing the understanding that God is so huge. God is doing something he's never done before. God is working way outside the box. And this baby that's in, 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 his, in his wife's womb is not just any ordinary baby. But his brain can't comprehend this at all. And so what he needs is for God to interpret this moment for him. That's what he needs. When he faces this impasse where his interpretation of the moment is not enough, he needs God. So let's look now at God's interpretation of this moment. God's going to interpret this moment 
Look at verse 20 with me. He says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to notice is verse, the first part of verse 20. But as he considered these things. Now, the way that's constructed, it means this, and you've got to catch this. You could put in here, as he was obsessing on these things. The word consider means to think about something over and over and over and over and over and over and over without ever resolving itself. It's just letting it go, right? Just You could imagine him laying on his bed at night thinking to himself, wow, my wife, my betrothed has cheated on me. She's lying to me. She's trying to put this on God. How dare her do that? I mean, you could just imagine the thoughts that would be going through his head. And, and the scripture has on here that he is thinking about this over and over and over and over. He can't stop thinking about it. Which would be understandable, right? I'm sure at least one point in your life you've assessed on a problem, right? Maybe once, right? A few years ago. <laughs> you know what it's like to obsess on things. You can imagine this kind of problem, how it owns them. That's why I think what you have in verse 20 is critical to understand. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He's laying on his bed. At least God let him fall asleep. I don't know about you, but like if I'm in one of those little loops, I don't sleep. Right? I just can't. It's like, it owns me. He falls asleep. I think gets God's gift to him. Kind of like, stop thinking for a moment, Joe. Okay? Let's, let's slow down. I know you cannot comprehend this. So, i got to blow your mind with a miracle here. I'm going to let you go to sleep. And then in your sleep, an angel's going to appear to you. And then notice what the angel says. Joseph, son of David. Now, just stop there. Think about that. Son of David. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we first began looking at Advent, uh, uh, studying or at the Advent season. Very, in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David is the title for the Messiah. It's a title for the one who's going to rule the world. Joseph's in the line of David. And so the angel is telling him, listen, buddy, this is huge. So I'm not just coming to you and saying Joseph, son of, and then naming his father. He's taking him all the way back to David to say, buddy, you have no idea. You're in the godly line. You're actually part of this plan here. You're part of this miracle that God had planned in bringing a Messiah. So I love the fact that he that appeals to him as son of David, which would have clearly gotten his attention. Clearly gotten his attention. He probably never had been called son of David before this moment. And now all of a sudden, he says, you're in the line of the Messiah, buddy. And then what does he tell him? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. One thing I've noticed about these angels at, at Christmas and all the Advent stories is uh, they always have to begin with, like, don't be afraid. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, angels, when they show up, it's a very scary thing. Or there's usually very scary things going on. And, and their job is to bring this level of comfort. And he says, now, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. 
clearly he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to defile himself. I think that's when he says he's a just man. He doesn't want to align himself in this case. And he says, now listen, don't be afraid to do it. Why? Why? So what is the point that he's getting at? He says, well, he says, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God himself has done this. This is the hand of God at work in your wife's body. Okay, she did not commit adultery on you. And that's something that that he needed to see. It really was the Spirit of God, which would have blown him away without question. This kind of interaction that God could actually do this, we're used to it because we've been singing these songs since we were kids. We're used to singing these songs about the incarnation, but for him, the thought of God containing himself in a womb is beyond measure. God can't even, you can't even say God's name. He couldn't even stand in the presence of God. I mean, God to him was so big that if he would have went into the inner holy of holies of the temple, he would have been killed. God is so huge and so awesome. And all of a sudden, he's saying, now listen, this God himself is now coming into your wife's womb. This is, you're going to need divine revelation to get this concept down. Because God just doesn't do this. It's an impossibility. But then he goes on. In verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, it's going to be a boy, and here's his name, Jesus, which is just the Greek derivative of Joshua, which is just the title, God saves. So that's what his name means, God saves. And so he says, now listen, you're going to call him God saves. Why? Because he is actually going to save his people from their sins. The whole world is condemned to death. You rebel against God once in the smallest ways, and there's only one consequence God gave to sin, right? Only one. The wages of sin is death. That's it. God does not do any kind of grading on a curve. One sin equals eternity in hell. Huge problem, right? Huge problem. Massive problem. And one such you might say, it's unfair. Yet God can do what he wants. And that's the way he established it. But the good news that he was going to send son, Jesus, to the world, who would do what? Who would die in our place so we wouldn't have to face that death. And even those that lived before that Messiah came and died could believe that God was going to bring that Messiah along to bring salvation and be saved. So no one is without hope. No one. Since this is what's going on here, do you recognize what is happening here? God is doing this incredible work. And then we have this little statement by Matthew. We can't let it uh, pass you by. In verse 22, Matthew, as he's writing the story... He now gives, in verse 22, a little narrative. He wants to make sure we understand this. And so he then wants to interpret it for us. And so he says, now listen, as I'm telling you the story, like if Matthew were speaking this story, he'd say, so the angel came, he says, name it Jesus. Now let me tell you why this is happening here. That's what verse 22 is. Notice what it says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Matthew's interpretation of the story. Now, why does Matthew insert this there? Well, let me go back, and we need to just for a moment review this account that he, he, uh, he referenced here from Isaiah chapter 7, because it's a quote from Isaiah 7. Lots of things are going on in Isaiah 7, and, uh, and, and you can read it all, but let me just give you the, uh, the quick note summary of Isaiah 7. Here, here's, how, here's what basically happened. Israel is in a divided kingdom, right? They got the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. So it's divided. Right above the northern kingdom is a country called Syria, with an S. Syria. Then you have, kind of outside that, uh, above that and to the right, if you're looking at a map, you have a country called Assyria, with an A. Assyria. Now, Assyria is the big dog. They're the superpower. And they're around there gobbling up all these smaller little countries. Syria realizes, whoa, we're next, right? As the kind of Pac-Man thing's going along, and, and they're gobbling things up, right? If you have no clue what that means, you've got to Google it, okay? Uh, and, it, and they're goggling it up. It, it, then all of a sudden, Syria realizes, we're next. So Syria, with an S, Syria, not us, Syria, right? I don't want you to get confused. Syria says to the, the northern kingdom, hey, we should get a pact going here. So we could kind of fight off Assyria. And we should also try to get the Judah to join us. So the king of the northern kingdom comes down to the king of the southern kingdom and says, hey, we're kind of getting this partnership going with Syria to fight off Assyria. Would you join us? And the southern kingdom says, no way. Never joining you. Don't like you. So then Syria and the northern kingdom says, well, then we're going to attack you. We're taking you down. Okay, you're not going to join us? We're going to kill you. The southern kingdom, the king is scared. Oh my. Okay, now they're coming after us. And Isaiah shows up to the king of the southern kingdom and says, good news. God will protect you. You don't have to do anything. Do nothing. God will protect you. Right? There's your advice. Do nothing. And... To prove to you that he's going to take care of you, God says, you could ask for any sign you want. He'll make that sign come true to prove to you that you don't have to worry. He'll protect you. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if some prophet comes to you and says, listen, God says that he's going to take care of you tomorrow, and you could ask for whatever you want. Right? I mean, you could go outside and say, listen, it's snowing outside. I want one little patch of ground where if I step in it, it's 75 degrees. Right? Everywhere else, it's like below zero and snowy. I'm standing 75 degrees with shorts on. That's what I want. God said, I would do that. Whatever you want, I'll do to prove to you that I'll protect you. That's the deal given to the king of the southern kingdom. You know what he says? God is very busy. The last thing I would ever want to do is tax him. He's a busy God. So, no thank you. I'm not interested. And I'm not interested in his help. He's busy. I've got another plan. You know what his plan was? To make an alliance with Assyria. Duh. You know, they're the enemy. Okay, but anyways, that's just how dumb he was. Okay. So, 
When the king of the southern kingdom says, no thank you God, I'm not interested in your help, God says, I'm still God. And I'm still going to protect you. And therefore, I will give you my sign. The sign of my protection is a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And he will be God with you. There's the sign of my protection. Now he gives that sign of his protection. And what Matthew is telling us is he's saying, listen, that has been God's sign. That divine protection is coming. And the great thing about that sign is that even though you can go back and look at the rest of Israel's history and elements that have gone on and children that were born and things like that, that kind of fulfilled that sign in part. What Matthew is telling us under the inspiration of the Spirit is that that sign was intended to have a bigger fulfillment than just protecting Judah from, a, from captivity. I mean, they ended up getting taken captive, but they were brought back to the land. And in and, and one sense, it, you say, well, where's the protection that he offered? God said he was going to protect, and yet they still got taken over by Assyria, and they still got taken over by Babylon, and Persians still conquered them, and the Greeks were after them, and on and on it went. When does God bring the protection? And Matthew's saying, here it is. Here it is. Here is the protection God promised. And a virgin did conceive. And she did bear a son. And they named him God the Savior. Because he is God with us. Matthew's saying that passage is being fulfilled right now. And the protection is coming. It's coming. And it's a beautiful protection. Because the salvation isn't just from a nation. The salvation is from God himself. Because the salvation that we are being saved from is from God. God said, I will punish you for all eternity for your sin, unless you're saved. And here's the good news. I'll save you. I'll take my own wrath. I'll bear my own punishment. So that I can display mercy and save you from me. Not just Judah, not just Syria, not just Assyria, not just Babylon, not just the Persians, not just the Romans. Not just whatever today, countries we would name today, from God himself. And he's saying, this is it. The salvation has come. Now, Matthew wants us to see this in that light. So now, here's what happens. Let's pick up the story here. Joseph is told, you're going to name the baby Jesus. He gets up, notice verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Right there. He took his wife, which means he ended the betrothal process early. That's the point. He ended the betrothal process early. Now, you can figure out why he ended it early, can't you? She's pregnant. He's going to protect her. So, he's going to end it early so that everything seems normal and she doesn't bear any shame. He took her as his wife. He completed the process. But... He didn't take any of the rights and privileges that were due him as a husband until after she had given birth. He allowed that scripture to be fulfilled. Some religions say that she stayed perpetually a virgin, but this text would obviously fight against that. Say something different. 
But the point is this, that Joseph recognized the, 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 the bigness of this moment. That it wasn't about him. And it wasn't even about her. It was about what God was doing in bringing the, sal- the salvation to the world. So, what do we get from this? Let me kind of, let's wrap this up here. What's the point we should get from this? Joseph didn't understand something about this moment, and this is understood. He, he couldn't until God had shown it to him. That this baby that was in his womb, in Mary's womb, is God himself. I believe once Joseph sees that, it's why he ends the betrothal process and, 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 and why he still maintains his intimacy distance from her. He sees God. He sees all that God is doing. He sees this baby as being God, Emmanuel, God with us. He recognizes this, and it shapes his world. So the question for us is this. Okay, we can tell the story. We can believe this. We can say, okay, yep, this is true. Now the question I have for you is this. What does it mean then for you, to you, that Jesus is God? Have you stopped to consider that? Does that have an impact when you consider what it means to be a Christian? Does this have an impact when you consider your world, your problems? We don't face Joseph's problems, but yet we face our own. What is God saying to us about Jesus when he tells us, listen, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is the one. This is the promised one from Isaiah 7. This is the one who's Emmanuel, God with us. This is the one who will save his people from their sins. This is God who saves. What does that mean? Well, I want to read to you a passage out of Colossians, kind of a lengthy passage, just some verses out of Colossians, that tell us what Jesus accomplished because of the fact that he's God. And I want you to think about this reality. Because Jesus is God with us, it means so much more than just you're saved and going to heaven. That's huge in and of itself. But it's even more than that. Okay, look at verse, listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 9. I'm going to read 9 through 15. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. That's what he's trying to say. He's all of God, bodily. God, the fullness of God in a body is what he's saying. It's huge. And you have been filled up in him. You are in him. Who's the head in all rule and authority? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcisions of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That was about five things said there. Let me just list them off for you. Number one, he's saying Christ is in you. You're filled up in Christ, right? The one who is all of God, the full deities in you. Just for a moment, think about that. Not saying you're God. I'm not going down that road. But he's saying this is the access you have. Second, the power 
sin had over you has been broken. And I feel that way, but it has been broken. Then he goes on to say, you've been given the very life of Christ. So that life that was in bondage to sin has now been replaced with the very life of Jesus, is what he's saying. The Messiah. And then he says, all your sins have been forgiven. All of them. You stand forgiven. And then finally he says, Satan has been disarmed and his power has been dismantled. That's huge, isn't it? That's what it means that Christ is the Messiah. Now, I had a conversation with somebody one time. A few years ago, a guy, he explained to me, he told me a story that he was on an airplane one time, and he suddenly he was facing all these problems, huge, huge crises in his life. And it, on many levels, every front of his life was breaking down. And he said he was flying on an airplane, and he had a panic attack on the airplane. And if you've ever had a panic attack, it's a very scary thing. All, you know, just his whole central nervous system just went out of whack. And, uh, and suddenly he realized, I am on, I am, you know, 35,000 feet in a cylinder going 500 miles an hour. No one's stopping to let me off this thing. And all of a sudden, he's just going through all that would go through when you have a panic attack. Just the fear, the worry, the anxiety, feeling like you're having a heart attack, your body collapsing, the claustrophobia, the sweats, the nauseousness, all the pressure just coming on him. Just huge panic attack. And all of his problems just kind of rushed at him like a flood. And I said, what did you do? And he said, there's a few things I did. I started remembering Colossians chapter 2. And I told myself, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And Jesus, who is God, is in control of this moment. And there is no one in the world who has any more control right now than Jesus. And because Jesus is God, my heart and my mind and my soul are guarded by God right now. Therefore, nothing is random. I'm standing in the center of God's will right now. He said, I just kept telling myself that over and over and over again. You see, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the reality. That's what God is saying. Listen, I have sent myself to the world and you are connected to it. There is no more powerful truth than that. God has said enough in that, hasn't he? What more could he possibly say than Emmanuel? God with us. You're with me. I've killed Satan. I've conquered him. I've rescued you. I've pulled you with me. I'm guarding you. I'm guarding your heart. I'm guarding your mind. I'm never ever going to leave you or forsake you. I am with you. There is not one moment where you're walking outside of me. Emmanuel, God with us. There is the hope of what God has said. So we look at what God has done, but let's listen to what he said. I'm coming. 
I'm sending one so that I can be with you. And I'll guard your heart, and I'll guard your mind, and I'll protect you, and I'll remind you, Satan's not in control. I am. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised to be the king, the universe, ruling over everything. You see, the good news of what God is saying is Emmanuel, God with us. And so today, I hope that you hear what God is saying to you. He hasn't, he hasn't walked away from communicating. He has said it all in Jesus. And what you have in those words of Jesus is all you will ever need. Would you bow your head with me? I thank you, Father, for saying everything in Jesus. That little message you put to define this moment, the quote from Isaiah 7, God with us. The scriptures are being fulfilled. The sign has come that your protection is here. The sign has come that your care is here. The sign has come that victory is here. That Jesus is God. And that we are in Jesus. We are connected to you. We are protected by you. All of our sins are forgiven. The power of, of, of death has been lifted. The, all of the, the, the guilt of our past has been set free and, 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 and completely done away with at the cross. Satan has been disarmed. And we're no longer bound to live for him. You are God. You are in control. There is no one more in control than you are. We are guarded by your very power. And that nothing is random. May we hear that every day. God, may that bring comfort to those who are suffering today. May it bring wisdom to those who are trying to decide what, what, where to go and what to do. And may it ground our hearts as we think of the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. I thank you for interpreting reality for us, Father. May your interpretation become ours. In Christ's name, amen.